What's up, everyone? Welcome to the second episode of the Global Recon Podcast. My name is John Hendricks. I'm the show's host, and I'm here with Mike Glover, the show's co-host. Uh, so today, um, before we begin, I want to give you guys a point of contact. So if you have any questions um, or anything relating to the podcast, you can send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net, and we're going to list this uh, in the podcast notes later on so you can come back so like i said any questions you have that might be regarding military or anything we discussed on the episode you can just email there so today's episode is going to consist of two separate interviews one conducted by mike and one by myself and mike interviewed amen ogana a vice news reporter who was embedded with the iraqi counter-terrorist force in iraq and shortly after that we're going to play the interview that i had with a Global Recon contributor by the name of Adrian Hatcher. As you all know, there's a, f a battle going on in Iraq for Iraq. And on the Iraqi side, the front lines, the troops leading the fight against ISIS is called the ICTF, and that's the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force. So I'm going to hand it over to Mike, and Mike is going to explain more about this to you guys. Hey, guys, it's Mike. It's Mike from Phil Craft. Uh, pleasure to have me on again. I, I love this podcast. But um, in his second podcast, hey, we plan to talk about the ICTF. Um, for those that don't know about the ICTF, uh, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force is a uh, special operations unit that we stood up. Um, and I say we, I mean the Commanders and Extremist Force, which is a, a specialized unit and special forces stood up in 2004 timeframe. Uh, we actually isolated those guys, trained them in another country, and then brought them back in to fight against um, the terrorists in Iraq. Um, that fight continued and still continues today. Um, when ISIS occupied battle space in Iraq in 2013, the ISOF, which is the overall arching command of the Iraqi Special Forces, uh, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, basically took the fight and were the only guys taking the fight uh, to ISIS. So in this podcast, in this episode, we plan to uh, highlight some of their efforts and then talk about a couple brothers that we've lost recently, uh, including uh, Issa, a good friend of mine from the ICTF. And and just a – so Mike conducted an interview with Aman, a, a vice news reporter, and we're going to get to that in a second. So just one thing that I think that is very uh, interesting and telling about this unit, the ICTF, is that – they include, you know, different ethnic groups and different um, belief, different religious belief groups. So, like, you have Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, uh, Kurdish fighters. So, I, I think, and, and that's something that was touched on in the interview, and, you you know, the listeners will hear that in a second. I think that's part of what made them special is that, there, you know, there wasn't that divide, which is uh, common in Iraq. So... Uh, now I'm going to play the interview for you guys, and you're going to hear Mike on with the Vice News Reporter. Hey, everybody. This is Mike from uh, Phil Craft with the Global Recon Podcast. Um, we're fortunate today. I have Aman Agana. Is, is, is Agana the, the, the right way to pronounce it, Aman? Amon Agana. Amon Agana. Amon Agana from Vice News. Uh, Amon Agana is a Vice News Reporter who actually contacted me if you guys are tracking my social media at soft survivor on instagram i had a good friend his name was isa he was uh, a sniper that i trained with with the iraqi counterterrorism force uh, we trained with these guys since 2004 out of jordan and conducted combat operations with these guys for over a decade um, i found out through really a third party that isa was killed and i started immediately posting um, so things on social media to try to support his family. And uh, Aman reached out to me, and and here we are today, and we're fortunate to have him on. And he's actually right now in another country outside of Iraq, which is, is fortunate that he's safe, but he's uh, about to go in. Uh, so to kick it off, let's, uh, uh, if you can, Aman, can, can you do a, quite a little intro on how you got to be where you're at right now um, and with Vice News and, and as a reporter? Um, well, I'm a, I'm a freelancer. I just um, 
pretty much started by um, just sort of going out there. I think uh, my first um, sort of work was in 2008, 2009. I saved up some money. I had a friend who was a reporter in Baghdad um, who let me uh, stay in their house for a bit, and I just sort of started the freelance uh, photography. For most of my career, I was a photojournalist, and then just recently I started doing video work um, and work for outlets such as Vice. Um, mostly in Iraq, but also around the, the Middle East and um, Afghanistan. Yeah, that's amazing, man. So, w- where are you from? What is your What is your background? Where, where are you from uh, originally? In, so, uh, I'm f- I'm from London, um, but my father is Iraqi and my mother is uh, British. Oh, that's amazing! That's amazing. Um, so, what? How did you get linked up? with the front line and get that intro to get linked up with the, on the front line with the Iraqi special operations forces. Uh, I was, I was kind of lucky in a long time. Um, you know, for a long time I've been trying to meet, um, to meet these guys, you know, they're kind of folk heroes in Iraq. Um, they have a lot of popularity and I've, I was always really interested in, in them and their story, but they were quite difficult to kind of get access to as a reporter. Um, and then after, um, after Mosul fell to to ISIS, and um, oh, actually no, it was after uh, after ISIS pushed into other areas and, and towards Erbil and Kurdistan, and there was and the U.S. military started to get involved again, and ISIS started to push back. I was quite lucky. I went on a kind of dog and pony sort of press call with um, the Kurds, actually, and I kind of I lost my kind of escort and just because I went walking towards the front line at the. Mosul Dam and kept going forward and forward until eventually I saw um, this commander, General Fawad Bawari, step out of a Humvee and I recognized him from his pictures and I've always been trying to interview and hang out with him and um, and so I was just really excited to see him and <laughs> I think he was excited to see this like crazy uh, foreigner who knew who he was and excited to see him too and then um, later that day I happened to run into the, that him and his guys again and we had dinner and I just sort of started the relationship with them saying you know I want to come and embed with you guys and tell you guys a story and since then I've just been kind of doing um, trips uh, embedded with them um, and uh, yeah it's been a really interesting uh, experience. Now now for those that, that don't know uh, the general that you described can you can you tell us a little bit about the general and, and who he's in charge of? So he's an interesting character um, in terms of Iraq. There's a lot of People who are sort of a little bit aware kind of assume that Baghdad's forces are like entirely uh, Arab and Shia. And Bawari is kind of an interesting character because he's a he's a Kurdish um, Kurdish guy. He was a Kurdish Peshmerga kind of guerrilla soldier and uh, fighting in the mountains, fighting against Saddam. And then you know after two thousand three, two thousand four, he was brought in as part of the uh, the counterterrorism uh, service and. The, the ISOF, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, and he was, le- was leading a brigade uh, with, within uh, ISOF uh, until very recently. He's, he's still around, but he actually lost his previous position following the, the fall of Ramadi uh, um, earlier last year. But he's a very, uh, he's, he's smart and he's really loved in Iraq um, because, I think precisely because he is a sort of non-sectarian figure as a sort of Kurdish guy. It's cool that, you know, to see like Shia and Sunni and Arabs like cheer his name, and he's probably the most popular kind of figure in a, in Iraq. He's also very charismatic, and he's kind of smart. In um, you know, Iraq is a country that doesn't really understand the media, and, but he's sort of smart enough to realize the value of things like Facebook um, and set up a very popular Facebook group and social media. And he's one of the few people who kind of realizes that this is a, a media war against uh, ISIS as well as a as a war on a battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's funny because uh, General Fadl, when he was in charge of the Iraqi counterterrorism force, I, I've actually hung out with him and ate dinner with him um, from 2007, 8, 9, 10. And he had billboards and he had that popularity about him. Then for listeners that don't know, um, the Iraqi t- counterterrorism force was trained by U.S. Special Forces. And when we first stood those guys up in Jordan, uh, we ran them through selection and, and processes um, and recruited these guys like we would recruit an American U.S. Army Special Forces uh, operator. And then we trained these guys to do operations 
against bad guys. It didn't matter um, where they came from, whether whether they were Sunni, Shia, or Kurdish. And what's unique is it worked. The model worked because we were able, as a tier one unit, ICTF was able to go into Sadr City, to go into Sunni areas of Baghdad and conduct combat operations. And they were brothers and, and they were a good, cohesive unit. And I had the unique uh, experience of, you know, advising and doing combat operations with these guys and remember how charismatic and how loved uh, the general was loved. And um, people don't realize, uh, Amon, maybe you could highlight on this, people don't realize that um, from my perspective, and you might have a different perspective, but from my perspective, the whole reason that we are able to actually continue to fight and take take land from ISIS is because of these guys un, under the general, because of these guys' um, will and strength and and tactical skill sets. Um, it, it seems to me like the the Iraqi army, in a lot of ways, lack good leadership, good hard skills, but these guys and the ISOF elements. Um, are a different breed of their own. Absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot has have been said about the Iraqi military um, and also the U.S. military um, and its legacy there and what was done in terms of training and the, the establishment of the Iraqi military. But like a real underrated or not very well-known success story has been, you know, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, ISOF, were, were really, uh, really capable um, cohesive and effective uh, military unit, probably uh, probably the most effective military unit in the history of the Iraqi state. And um, when the and and that's continued up until now. And yeah, I think uh, they have been the sort of main force and the reason ISIS hasn't gone further. I mean, the Iraqi military collapsed when ISIS took um, took Mosul uh, 2014, but ISOF didn't. Uh, and they were the sort of reason um, that they, that ISIS didn't go further. But the problem with that was is that when the when the Iraqi military collapsed, these guys um, became the entire military basically. And I'm sure, as, as you guys know more than me, like um, you know, that special operations forces need to be treated as like a elite special units. And the problem with ISIS was that they were made to do everything. You know. Um, man checkpoints to sit on defensive lines for like up to a year or more and they weren't rested, they weren't continuously trained and they weren't treated as they were before and they were basically made to just constantly um, to fight and battle and do everything that a conventional military force was supposed to be doing just because the regular army had collapsed. Um, so that really kind of uh, diminished their capability a little bit but despite everything they've um, they've uh, they've endured and they've succeeded and we've recently seen uh, in Ramadi they recently retook the city and you know one of the biggest um, victories for the Iraqi military in, in years and as you mentioned before General Father was uh, yeah very charismatic and and very key in um, in uh, sort of shaping the culture of this unit and um, you know Iraq uh, a lot of people are outside you know your listeners might not know just how deeply sectarian a place Iraq can be and the mistrust between the Sunnis and the Shias and the Kurds is really, you know, horrible. And this is a unit that, you know, in many ways, because it was, like you said, of, you know, training and selection, everything was done like a U.S. Special Forces unit, um, managed to rise above that. And that's a really rare and sort of beautiful thing in the country that's become so divided and sectarian. Uh, Amon, from your from your perspective, working on the front line with these guys, and and you know, the the sense that I get is is they're basically taking the lead on on really representing the country and defending the country. Uh, what what do you think the future looks like for Iraq and, and ISAF and and the, and the role in it? Um, you know, I, I hope I'm pretty confident that. Um Within the next year and eighteen months, um, ISIS will be defeated militarily in Iraq and and uh, taken off the battlefield, and they won't hold ground in the way that they've done. But I think um, 
the security situation will continue to be very difficult. We'll still see a number of um, terrorist attacks uh, in Baghdad and other cities. I mean, we're even seeing that now, like uh, on the battlefield, ISIS have been losing um, ground, but the number of sort of car bombs and attacks in Baghdad has increased a little bit. Um, going back to the sectarian thing, and you know, when the army collapsed, another thing that happened in Iraq was that um, the Shia militias who like who you used to fight and who ISOF used to fight um, were kind of brought on board and like legitimized and armed and paid to fight ISIS. And they're, you know, this, these are not a very professional uh, unit. They're sort of have a sort of culture of like gangsterism and, um, you know, religious kind of fanaticism on the other side, you know, and they're very close to Hezbollah and Iran and have produced some pretty unsavory characters. And they were kind of let off the leash when ISIS entered Iraq. And when ISIS is defeated on the battlefield, you know, the real question is, what do we do with these guys, uh, the Shia militia now? They're not going to go anywhere quietly. And I can see a lot of potential conflict um, so between, say, ISOF and these guys, um, which happened, you know, previously in, in 2008 um, in Basra and also in Sada City. There was a lot of fighting between ISOF and, and these guys. And the ISOF, you know, did a very good job. But now the Shia militia are a, a lot more powerful and better armed and better trained and combat experienced after the fight with ISIS and the support they've been getting from Iran. So that's worrying. Um, and I also reckon that all these Shia militias are going to start fighting each other in a battle for power and resources and sort of red-on-red red, uh, violence. So I'm optimistic generally, but there's also a lot of... Um, worrying signs in the future. I don't think it's going to be a totally stable place anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, get, I get the same sense. I remember, and you just mentioned about 2008, I remember that, that year we heavily spent a lot of time that summer going into Sadr City and trying to deal with the militias. And we took a lot of casualties. I mean, ISOF, we rolled in there with tanks to lead the convoys in there, and we were getting uh, EFP, which is, you know, an, an advanced IED that, that, that came from Iran. And I remember, uh, losing a lot of guys on the Iraqi side, uh, and the American side. And it, it was a big problem. And like you said, you know, it's, it's one of those dynamic, complex, uh, situations that even if ISIS was crushed and annihilated, there's, there's all these residual things that we have to deal with. I appreciate you laying that out. Um, let's talk about let's talk about ESO a little bit um, for the viewers that that don't know the story. Um, so ESO, I met ESO in 2006 timeframe, and ESO was a sniper back then with the ICTF, which is the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, which under uh, General Fadl's model was the tier one organization that was tasked with doing uh, high value targets, hostage rescue, uh, which we did quite quite a few of, um, and anything that was really um, a surgical strike, the ICTF, um, that's the mission set they were given. And they were very surgical, very precise, very uh, well trained and, and funded. And that we recruited the best guys that Iraq had to offer, and ESA was one of those guys. I remember, um, and I just posted it on my uh, Soft Survivor Instagram, uh, a short video clip of a 72-hour uh, stay-behind mission that we did in Iraq where we occupied a gentleman's house, and we were trying to hunt a high-value target in, in the neighborhood. And I remember the interaction between ESA and the local population and how humble and compassionate he was, but also on the flip side of the token, how violent and surgical and just uh, precise in his abilities to conduct operations. So he could, he was like the, you know, true warrior, but just had this compassion about him that, that just stood out to me and, and hearing about him getting killed from Muhammad, one of his, his best friends, uh, was really hard for me. Uh, can you tell me you know, how how did you meet Issa? Because I I know that he was a big part of the story in the documentary that you filmed. How did you meet him? And then uh, what what are your thoughts on on him? Yeah, um, I met uh, basically when I met these guys at Mosul Dam. I 
you know, I spent a lot of time in Iraq and I basically became friends with a very tight circle of friends who were who had been in ICTF from you know, from the very first selections, a kind of group of like old hands who have a really, really close relationship uh, together, and and I sort of became friends with each of the people in the in this group, and Issa was was one of them, and um, yeah, I think you described him really, really well. I mean, he has a a reputation, you know, within ICTF of being a kind of very professional, fearless, like warrior killer, you know, like he's really good at his job. But if you know when you meet him and you hang out with him, you just have you wouldn't have any idea because he's, he's this this like the most humble, sweetest, like like you said, compassionate guy, like always listening, always kind, always offering something to people around him. You know, really attentive. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was a really great loss. I think even you know for people like you know me and you, Mike, we were very affected by it. And just talking to his friends. You know, in Iraq, the other day, it's you know, it's been I guess almost a week since he died, but they're still, you know, they're still choked up and in tears, and uh, yeah, it's really sad. He represented the kind of the best that that country has to offer, and um, he'll be missed dearly by his uh, by his friends and family there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, so for for people who want to help, I was going to wait to the end of the show to to, to lay this out, and and I'll, and I'll highlight it again, but. Um, if you go to my website, it's uh, www.fieldcraftsurvival.com. It's uh, Filled Craft, and it's uh, Craft with a C. Um, on the front page, uh, it's just got a little story, a little write-up on Issa, and then it's got uh, Amon's uh, Vice documentary on ISIS and, and uh, uh, ISOF on the front line where he's embedded with him, and it also has a GoFundMe link. On the GoFundMe link, I'm, I'm, my goal is to raise uh, $10,000, uh, the more the merrier, to, to help his family. As far as I know, I've talked to uh, a couple of people in his close circle. He got his family moved out of the country to Turkey. Uh, he has a wife and three kids, and they're with his brother now. Um, once I get that money, I plan, um, hopefully with Amon to travel to Turkey and link up with his family and, uh, and, and hand that over to his family. Because I know these guys in their situation, I know General Faddle is typically good about helping these guys out, um, but he, he's working under constraints and anything that we could do to help him uh, as American special forces operators, former or current, um, and, and America period, uh, we owe a, a, a great debt of that, uh, gratitude uh, to guys like Issa. Um, so yeah, um, so um, moving back, into your current status now when when do you go back in brother when when do you go back into iraq and and get embedded again you know i'm planning to go in the next um two weeks i'm just sort of doing research right now and figuring out the best place to, to be but i predict that that the next few months and particularly this year is going to be we're going to see a lot of uh, momentum um against isis and hopefully a lot of uh, gains for ISOF and the Iraqi security forces. I mean, I really wouldn't be totally surprised if, um, I mean, you know, last year it would have seemed crazy to think when people were talking about a Mosul offensive, it just seemed insane that you could imagine one happening so soon, you know, soon or ever even, you know, but, um, but now I think uh, things are really picking up and I think we could see uh, um, ISIS areas liberated within the next, within the next year, certainly. Yeah, I think uh, just what I've read off the news recently, um, that we we are definitely picking up our increasing our signature and increasing our presence on the ground. So hopefully that means more combat controllers, more joint terminal air controllers on the ground to help control air in bed with these guys and start uh, taking the fight to ISIS. I mean, uh, we've been dragging it out. These guys have been fighting for their lives since the beginning, since around 2013. So uh, yeah, I, I I think the same thing. Maybe in the next twelve, hopefully, um, twelve to eighteen months, that things start getting hashed out, and these uh, places where ISIS have occupied get taken back over by ISAF forces. Um, Aman, tell us how how can we uh, track your progress, track your uh, movements? Uh, how can we tune into you on social media, on uh, web accounts? 
Um, I'm not super active on Twitter, but I should uh, I should get better on that. Um, but I do have a, a Twitter and Instagram and a, a Facebook account. Also, um, I work. I'm a freelancer, but I work mostly for Vice News, and they tend to do a pretty good job of of pushing stuff out um, when it's there. So if you follow Vice News and the battle in Iraq, I'm sure you'll hopefully see some more of my work going forward. Okay, yeah, and 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 for all the listeners out there, we plan to track his progress and. And Amon, I, I appreciate having you on today, and I hope that uh, we can get together, and maybe even when you're in Iraq, we could uh, update the listeners and do interviews uh, periodically, just to tr- track the progress and and make sure you're okay, and and see how ISAF is doing as they continue to to fight against ISIS. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, it's been a real pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, brother. Hey, stay safe, and uh, tell all the brothers in ISAF. Uh, thank you for their service, and uh, we hope to do everything we can to help them. Will do. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Hey, so that was the interview with Aman. Uh, that was a pretty good interview. Uh, it was very insightful, and uh, hopefully the listeners can uh, take some value from that. Okay, so uh, going forward, you have a course coming up for February, right? Uh, a training course that you're teaching. Yeah, it's the same course that I ran last month. We're going to run one course per month. Uh, our course is called the Ops Course. So it's uh, observe, prepare, and survive. That's kind of our, our motto. Um, but it's a it's a base. We call it a basic course, but it's kind of like a a our, a fire hose effect of survival and preparedness, giving a little bit of everything and kind of saturating the client with you know all the things that we see that are important and survival and preparedness, which includes equipment, a little bit of shooting, a little bit of mindset, uh, a little bit of defensive driving, and just kind of encompassing our mission objective as a as a company and our training path. And so far, it's been real successful. Our last class, our last two classes that we ran were, were real good. We had real good feedback. Uh, you can read the reviews on our Facebook page. It's uh, facebook.com backslash Survival. And then uh, that course is February 20th at 09. I already have, there's, I only have six slots available and I already have five filled. So I actually only have one more slot. So if anybody's interested in, they could uh, email me at info at fieldcraftsurvival.com. Again, that's info at fieldcraftsurvival.com. And, and the class is held in Northern California? Yeah, it's held in I own California. Uh, I, I, I kind of just say Northern California because nobody really knows where I own that. Okay. We have a training facility about 50 acres out in the middle of the country, east of Sacramento. Uh, so if people fly into Sacramento, we're about an hour outside of that um, in the middle of nowhere, which is good for uh, isolation and, and, and good training. All right, cool. So up next is an interview that I conducted with a Global Recon contributor. Her name is Adrian Hatcher, and Adrian is the first uh, Missouri, the first female Apache pilot in the Missouri National Guard history. And Adrian's just an all-around great person, and she runs an organization called Combat Boots and High Heels, which provides an array of services for veterans. Uh, so here it is. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Adrian Hatcher, and Adrian is the Missouri National Guard's first female Apache helicopter pilot. Uh, some of you may know Adrian wrote an article for the website uh, a couple of months back uh, detailing some of her career and her organization, which is called Combat Boots and High Heels, which is an organization that gives to veterans, and she'll get uh, more into that. So, Adrian, how's it going? Hi, John. Um, everything is going great. Uh, I'm actually just avoided the uh, blizzard that's going on in Washington, D.C. I'm currently in Tennessee right now. Nice, lucky. Yeah, actually, we got hit pretty hard in New York, um, so that was pretty good. Okay, Adrian. So I want to talk about your experience as the first um, Apache pilot, the first female Apache pilot in the Missouri National Guard history. Um, what at what point did you decide that you wanted to uh, go the Apache route? So um, I enlisted when I was seventeen, and when I started out, I honestly did it for the college money. Um, I, I wanted to go to college and my parents said that they weren't going to pay for it. So starting out, it was just something to pay for school. And as anybody knows, as they continue to progress in their career, you stay in for different reasons than why you join. 
Um, for me, I decided after I graduated college that I wanted to do something that really made a difference. Uh, during college, 9-11 happened, and I was an admin enlisted side when I joined, and I thought if I'm going to deploy and support this effort, I want to make sure that I'm doing something that's going to support the soldiers on the ground. Um, I was lucky I enlisted into a aviation unit, um, so I knew somewhat about aviation. And then when the opportunity opened up, I, I took it. I'm very happy I did. Nice. So you were not you, you weren't you didn't go straight into being an Apache pilot. You started off as uh, what what helicopter did you fly prior to that? So basically, everyone starts out, and, and it depends on what time frame you went to flight school. But everyone starts out at when I was there as a, as a TH sixty seven, and then. As you progress, you actually go into your advanced airframe, and my advanced airframe was um, the Apache Longbow. I then transitioned back to the Alpha model because that's what our state had, um, and then I deployed as a Delta model pilot. Okay, so so basically, you train on a like a what what they consider like a standard helicopter, and then from there you you go to what you would specialize in or what you would eventually get into, like for different different training paths. Yes, um, you know, because when you start out, you don't even know how to hover. You barely know how to even open the door to an aircraft. So uh, before they put you into the $30 million her uh, helicopter, they're going to put you into the, you know, starter one to make sure that they can teach you the basic fundamentals of being a Navy first. Right. Okay. I see that. That makes sense. So, okay. So um, what what was the duration of the time, like from the time that you became an aviator to the time that you deployed as an Apache pilot? So I graduated from flight school in about 2007, and we deployed in 2013. So I had quite a bit of time. Um, I probably had about 750 hours uh, prior to deployment. Uh, so and various RL progression levels, like I said, we went through the alpha model, then the delta model. Um, so I think I had about 800 hours, 750 to 800 hours before we deployed. Right. So, okay, cool. So what? Uh, how long was your deployment? All in all, our deployment was about a year. Um, we were actually only in country for about eight months, give or take. Uh, the National Guard usually has to go to a train-up. Ours was approximately, we did actually a month at Idaho where we did a full gunnery where we trained 20 combat crews, had to, had to fire. And then we went to Fort Hood uh, to work with 21st CAV and then to certify um, as an Apache unit. And that was about three months. And then from there, we deployed straight from Fort Hood to Afghanistan. Uh, and we were spread, spread into three locations. Um, we, are, we were headquartered out of Mazari Sharif up north, um, RC North. And then we were also in RC East and RC West. When you deploy, you deploy as a, as a, like a battalion. Was that, was that, would that be the right terminology for that? Yeah, so when we deployed, we deployed as a battalion, and actually, um, we were the first National Guard task force, uh, so we actually had active duty units that fell under us up north, so we, we were oh, wow. um, the aviation assets for all of RC North. We had Chinooks that were active duty and Blackhawks, as well as a medevac unit that was active duty as well. Basically, you, you deploy, and in your battalion, people have their different specialties, so as for us, we deployed as, an, as a battalion, um, an attack battalion, but then they took a, c a couple companies and they put them in RC East and another company and put them in RC West. And then they left our headquarters as well as our Bravo company up north and then supplemented us with some active duty assets so that we had other air airframes as well to complete the whole aviation package, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, well see, it's... One thing is, you know, there will be a lot of military listeners for the show, but there will also be a lot of non-military. So, you know, what I try and do is just to clarify somewhat, um, you know, with, with keeping the, the the time frame in mind, because obviously you can you can go into this kind of stuff for, uh, you know, an extended period. Uh, but after the show, there will be links to your website. There will be links to the article that you wrote for my website. And if anyone wants to learn more, um, there will be places and resources that they can reach out to and they'll get responses back. So you said your deployment was for one year and the, the Apache helicopter is an attack helicopter. It's an offensive helicopter, right? 
That is correct. Um, we carry 30 millimeter um, Hellfires and we also carry rockets. So we're multifaceted. Uh, and among the rockets, we have Alum rockets as well as, you know, flechettes and um, various other types that we can use depending on the situation. Awesome. W without going too, into too much detail, um, your your deployment was basically supporting combat operations in your in your area of operations. Yeah. So basically, uh, one of our main customers uh, was a special operations unit that was up north, uh, located in several different outlying locations, um, as well as uh, we did support some engineers um, and other items. We were actually involved in one of the largest expeditionary task force. Um, that Afghanistan had ever seen while we were there. So that was really an interesting uh, perspective that we got to be a part of. Right. And and when you're a part of a task force that large, that, that basically means that you're uh, embedded with a bunch of other different kind of uh, units and assets, right? Right. Yeah. So basically, like the task force has, you know, various different airframes. But then when you have an expeditionary task force, it's basically where you take the operation and you move it into an unknown area. Um, and then you set up uh, the environment to be able to to enable the ground troops to accomplish their mission. OK, so is that something that's like like almost like setting up a, a forward operating base or that's that's just specifically for a mission? Um, so it, it is kind of, but it's very temporary. Um, basically, what you're trying to do is is get to a new location, secure the area, and set it up to where you can have a, aviation um, assets so that the ground guys or gals um, can go and do their mission. And then you, it's a short-term thing, so then you're going to you know, leave that area as soon as the mission's accomplished and go back to wherever you came from. Okay, awesome, awesome. After... Actually, it was this might be but before your deployment, you you were also involved in um, a, a response to Hurricane Katrina. Is that right? Yeah, um, I was on the ground in Hurricane Katrina. I started off actually in the the talk, if you will, at our state headquarters. I was uh, part of the the process, and I've got to actually hear the governor of Louisiana on the phone with the uh, adjutant generals from the various states. When everything first kicked off, um, it was obviously extremely chaotic. And then because I was also aligned with my aviation unit and I hadn't gone to flight school yet, they uh, called us up and actually they took a bunch of aviators and we did security, <laughs> a security mission on the ground um, right in the French Quarter. Oh, wow. Okay. So this is pre-aviation uh, days for you. Right. So I had just finished officer candidate school and this all happened. And so they took our aviation unit because they need, they took anybody they could. They just didn't have enough people. And we did a convoy from Missouri down to Louisiana, uh, said that we were actually located in the convention center and, um, they used the lieutenants and warrant officers as if you will, squad leaders. And we functioned like a military police would, or even some infantry, like would on state side of that, of, you know, doing roving patrols and various other missions like that. Oh wow, that's pretty interesting. And and were you there for the duration of the um like the the response to Hurricane Katrina? I was there for about thirty five days, I think it was. Um, obviously, um, aviation isn't the type of people <laughs> that you want there long term for a security mission. So um, at the time, like I said, they needed anybody and everybody who they could get down there and could could arrive quickly to maintain the situation. But for the sustainment of the operation, they wanted people who were actually military police or the infantry to bring it to the long haul. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, because well, that's what they, they train for, these security kind of situations. Exactly. Right. Okay, so also, so another thing I want to talk about, um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of uh, discussion, uh, and this is something we're going to get into much further detail down the line in future episodes. Um, so, you know, with the inclusion of women in uh, special operations units or infantry units, obviously it sparked a big debate. Um, a lot of people on both sides of the argument. So I, I know, 
going into be, being the first female Apache pilot, I know that that definitely was not an easy thing to do, uh, especially in an area that's dominated by males. So what was that like? Was there any, um, obviously you felt some kind of pressure, but was there any extra, you know, because you're a female, you felt like things were different or, um, you know, what, what did the guys treat you the same, you know, after they got to know you kind of thing? Uh, well, I, I definitely think that it was an extremely challenging time. I, I flew the Apache for eight years, and um, I can assure you that not one second or one day was them going easy on me. Um, they continually challenged me. Um, you know, I think some of it was subconscious. You know, if, let's say, we're all out flying um, a training mission and uh, an aviator makes a call on the wrong radio, you know, if you're the only female voice that's heard, your voice stands out. So it was really crucial for me to not make mistakes. I, I had very little room for any flaws. And I think most Apache pilots are A-type personalities. And then you put that into the situation, being the only female, and you kind of stand out. I was very, very hard on myself. And so every day was, a, as a, all I can say is every day was a constant constant challenge. I have a lot of really great memories with a lot of really great people. Um, but I, I do wish some things would have maybe been a little bit different. And I'm excited for the day where it's commonplace so that uh, maybe some of people in general don't have to face some of the struggles that maybe I, I had to go through. Right, right. Um, I mean, I, I can imagine. I mean, even, you know, for to, to be an Apache pilot, you know, that's an exclusive club. So, you know, male or female, it's hard, something hard to do. Um, like I said, we're, we're going to get deeper into the issue down the line. We'll dedicate whole episodes to that. And we're going to try and have some people on both sides of the debate. Um, so now I also want to get into your organization, which is called Combat Boots and High Heels. Uh, so can you give the audience, the listeners, some background information on the company? Definitely. So um, I founded Combat Boots and High Heels shortly after I left the Apache and transitioned to the Lakota. Um, and mainly it was because I found that there was a lot of, uh, or there was a lack, or excuse me, there was um, female mentorship was lacking. And a lot of that was because there's not as many high ranking females just in general. So it's difficult for a you know, to find somebody that looks like you to give you the mentorship that you need. That was one of the reasons. Um, another reason was just to support veterans in general. You know, there's a lot of organizations that have gotten so big now that they, I think some of them have lost sight and lost touch with, you know, the people who actually do need the assistance. So I decided that this was something that I wanted to do to give back, you know, to stay in touch and to really just support the soldiers that needed it most. Right. That's awesome. It's it's definitely a, a great thing that you're doing, and it's not. Th this is this goes into females and males. It's both. Uh, you guys support both. Um, and so, can you explain a little bit about what uh, specifically? What are some of the things that you offer to soldiers? Definitely. Um, so, multiple things for Christmas. We gave away hundreds of dollars in Christmas gifts to uh, male and female soldiers and veterans um, that were in need that didn't have money to buy their children gifts for whatever reason. We also have done utility assistance for people who can't afford utility. We've also homeless veterans. Um, I've had people reach out to us and say uh, through the transition period from getting them off the streets into a permanent place. Uh, we have we have provided, you know, a hotel room for a week or two at a time till they could, we could get them to transition. Um, additionally, we have a car that an uh, awesome veteran is going to be donating to us so that we can donate a van here soon uh, to a veteran in need. Um, we, we do multiple things. We also have baby boxes that go to male or female service members. Um, if they have a new baby, um, that can be a very trying time and very anxious time. So these boxes are designed to kind of give them a start within the first two to three days after giving birth. Nice. So you, you guys are providing a wide uh, array of services for veterans who need it. Um, and, and, and that's always a good thing. 
And from from what I understand, uh, when veterans need help, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, PTSD related or, you know, anything that a veteran may need, it's always uh, good that to, that they get the help from someone who, who was in their community or someone who's in their community. So that's always a good thing. Um, okay, so uh, the last thing I want to get into, uh, in the article that you wrote for my website, there was a small part where you spoke about sacrifice, and uh, you you have a son, and when you deployed, you were, you were gone for a year, and your your son was still still small, you know, still a, a baby. So, uh, you know, I just want to get the message across to listeners, you know, that. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice that is made by service members, especially those who are, you know, deploying into combat zones. So, can you just talk a little bit about sacri- the the sacrifices that you that you the sacrifice you made and and you know some of the things that are going through your head as you're going through that deployment? So, uh, I had my son in March 2012, and I was about four weeks into maternity leave. Uh, when I found out that my unit was deploying, I was a company commander at the time. And so I immediately came off of maternity leave because I knew that I needed to get my company prepped for deployment. That was the job that I did on the M-Day side, or if you will, the one week in a month side. On the full-time side, I was the state mobilization officer. And so I also knew that with a battalion that size, they, they needed me back as well to work those functions so I could make sure that my battalion was absolutely ready in every facet possible to get out the door. So like I said, I came off of maternity leave two weeks early. After that, I also had to get back up and flying. And a lot of people think that flying is just something that's extremely easy. You're just doing it, whatever. But it takes a tremendous amount of dedication, amount of studying, memorization, uh, correlation that goes into it. There's often times where I would leave my house uh, early in the morning and not get back till 1.30 at night. Uh, so that's less time, you know, with a new baby boy. And then I transition into the, the S4 position, which is basically where you, a big part of that is preparing logistically for mobilizing your unit to and from. So that took up a tremendous amount of time as well. Like I said, we had 30 days in Idaho prior to us even leaving. When I left for mobilization, my son was a year old. I literally gave him a kiss and said I love you for his first birthday and then mobilized for a year, not knowing if I would ever come back. And I, I really had to get my mind right for that because, you know, being him being my first child and me wanting him so badly for so long, you know, it was something that definitely crossed my mind. Like I may not ever see my son again. And basically I had to come to the understanding that there's a lot of people who may not see their child again if I don't go. And if I'm not there overhead, you know, being that overwatch for the people on the ground. So that's really what got me through it to be quite honest. Basically the, the, the bottom line message uh, as far as that goes is, um, you know, there are things uh, greater than yourself, things that are bigger than yourself. And um, as Adrian, she just stated, making sure that other parents, other, you know, fathers, mothers, brothers, cousins, sisters made it home to their families. And, um, you know, we're, we're all very thankful for for that. Um, so that's it. That This will be the introduction to Adrian Hatcher. And Adrian will be making a lot more appearances on the podcast down the line as we talk about a lot of issues relating to women in combat and just general uh, military issues. Um, So, Adrian, it was great having you on. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate what you're doing continually with Global Recon and uh, everything that you guys are doing to support the military and veterans. Cool, cool, great. So at the end of the episode, I'm gonna list. I'm gonna say Adrian's. Uh, she'll get. We'll get her website up there. Uh, the combat boots and high heels. We'll get her social media handles out there, and that'll also appear in the podcast notes. So be sure to check out the podcast notes on the website, uh, and you and you'll get further details um, about the people who appeared on the episode.
All right. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you so much. And that was the end of the interview with Adrian Hatcher. Adrian will be on more often in the future uh, discussing a, a bunch of different topics. So just look out for Adrian on the show. So moving forward, we're going to release an episode a week and then two or three smaller 20-minute segments per month. And um, so I know, Mike, you you may be able to get Aman on for those smaller segments, right? Yeah, yeah. He's So he's in, he's embedded with uh, – he's going to be embedded here in the next week with ISOF um, on the front lines. So I talked to him, and he said anytime – he gets the chance. He's going to give us some updates, which is which will be real good for the podcast. So, you know, we can get some some real facts off off the front line and off the battleground. So, good on Amen and appreciate appreciate his efforts and uh, um, hope hope you stay safe. Right. Yeah, that'll be pretty interesting. So, so that's it for podcast episode number two on the Global Recon Podcast. Um, once again, I'm John Hendricks, the show's host, and I'm here with Mike Glover, the co-host. Um, you know, we hope you guys enjoyed it. The feedback from the first episode was great and it was, uh, more than I expected. Um, so, you know, and, and like I, I listed the episode, the email address for any questions that you have for anything you hear on the podcast. And once again, that's podcast at globalrecon.net and we respond to every single email. So even if we can't get to the, even if we can't respond on the show, we'll definitely email you back. So, Mike, you have anything you want to close with? No, I just again thank thank you to all the supporters out there on Instagram, on on social media, on Facebook, and, and the podcast. We received a, a warm welcome. Uh, me and John, um, with John leading the way, are new to the podcast experience, but uh, it's just a new medium for us to uh, put out facts and and put out important topics that that I think are are becoming more important, more relevant as we continue. So, uh, again. Thanks for the support and uh, look forward to the continued journey. Cool, cool. So check out Mike at fieldcraftsurvival.com. That's his website. You can check him out on Instagram at softsurvivor. That's S-O-F, survivor. And you can check him out on Facebook at Fieldcraft LLC. You can find Adrian Hatcher's website at www.combatbootsandhighheels.org. And you can find her Instagram handle at combatbootsandhighheels. You can find Aman Ogana's Twitter handle at Aman Ogana, and you can find him on Instagram at Aman underscore Ogana. My website is globalrecon.net, and you can find me on Instagram at IGRecon and on Facebook at FBRecon. Peace.